That's all that we need. Blessed, plural, is the man who doesn't walk in the ungodly counsel or will not stand in the way of sinners. tonight to Psalm 1. Tonight as we continue our Through the Bible studies on Sunday evening, we come to this second book of a section that is called the Poetic or Books of Wisdom. They run from Job through Song of Solomon. In Hebrew, this book is called Sefer Tehillim. It means the book of worship or the book of praises. And most all of the psalms are written with musical instrument accompaniment. There's a few a cappella songs written at least that way, but for the most part, this is Israel's hymn book. And we're going to spend a few months going through there. We won't just do two chapters like we are tonight. In fact, we'll try to do five if we can uh, each Sunday evening. But really the Psalms and most all of the poetic or wisdom books are designed to develop your personal and present tense relationship with God. So there's not, although there's history, it doesn't spend time covering history as much as it does in covering those who are going through it looking to the Lord. Because the Psalms are individual, we'll, the approach will be a little different than it has been in the past. We will um, probably be looking at five mini studies, you know, on Sunday nights for a while as we go through the Psalms, because many of the Psalms have their own subject or their own motivation. Um, 73 of the 150 Psalms David wrote. Most of them are marked that way. A few of them aren't marked at all, but you, you hear from other sources there in the Bible that David wrote them, and we'll find one of those, in fact, tonight. Um, the Asaph group, the worship team that David established early on, wrote a dozen of these. Solomon wrote a couple, Moses wrote one, a fellow named Ethan wrote one. The sons of Korah wrote a dozen as well, the Levitical family of singers. But the Psalms focus on God's past work, on his future promises, but always to get to the present need of the people. And it is this interesting picture because we get to come into the sanctuary, listen to the prayers and to the songs of the people who wrote them, and it's almost like eavesdropping on someone's relationship with God. You, you, you know what the situation is, you know what they're praying, and so it helps you to pray as well. There are some of the Psalms that are grouped together um, and even repeat themselves like good Hebrew poetry should. It, repetition means emphasis or exclamation. So if you go through Psalm 104, 105, 106, it's a whole group of Psalms that speak to the history of the nation. Or if you um, go to Psalm 119, which I'm sure you know, the long one. It is entirely about God's word, the Bible, and, and, and the promises of God's word. There's a chapter, um, Psalm 90, which only speaks about the glory of God. And 91, which speaks about God's merciful care for his people. There's that Thanksgiving Psalm, 136. That's all that it's interested in. Or the Hallel Psalms, the, the Psalms of Ascent from 111 to 117. So there are some grouped ones, but many of them are just individually and they stand on their own. It's kind of like studying the hymn book. Um, some of them will set your heart on fire for the Lord as you meditate on it. Others will get your feet dancing. 
and still others will fill your eyes with tears. I mean, they're just written that way. That's what music will do. Much of the Psalms is prophetic in nature. It speaks a lot about the Messiah, his coming, his, his birth, his death, his ascension. Um, Psalm 110, which speaks about Jesus as the Son of God, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other single chapter in the Old Testament. In fact, there are almost 200 quotes, 186, I think, is the exact number of quotes from the Psalms in the New Testament. So it's quoted a lot, and throughout the Bible, when you find people in trouble, you find them turning to the Psalms. And as you read the narratives, you know, you'll find that to be true. When Jonah was in the belly of the whale, he started quoting Psalms. When Jesus is in the upper room and in Golgotha, quoted the Psalms. When Peter, on his first sermon there on the Pentecost, preached, he quoted from the Psalms. When Paul summarized the, the indictment of, of the Holy Spirit against man's sin and how the Holy Spirit works to convict of sin, he, he did so by going to quote the Psalms. So they were actively being used even in the first century, though many of them were written you know, a thousand years earlier. Our desire is to cover each psalm to a greater or lesser extent depending on um, whether we know its subject. If you've been reading psalms at all, and I try to read one a day just because it's a great little smart, short, usually thought, you know, to mull on and to think upon. But you've probably seen that in some of the introductions to the psalms that you'll, you'll read, uh, for example, in Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Well, that makes it pretty easy. Then you can go back and read the history and know the, the, the frame of mind and the situation, and then the song makes a lot more sense. Um, I don't know if you've ever found a song that you really liked, and then um, you found out what it was written for, and you go, hmm, I wouldn't have thought that at all. Dan Marks, who wrote a lot of good worship songs when I was working at Calvary um, Downey, wrote a song uh, one time that to me was just the most beautiful worship song I'd ever heard, and I said, well, what? motivated you to write that? He said, my wife and a guy got in a fight and she locked me out of the house. I said, that's where it came from. He goes, yeah, I was just going, Lord, well, I'm such an idiot. And I wrote it on the porch. And I, went, I never could listen to this song again the same way. Yeah, oh, poor Dan's locked out of the house, you know. I hope they let him back in. But on the other hand, when you know the setting, it can be very helpful because then you get to see the heart of the individual. And I find that at least in listening into the Psalms or into the prayers of the people that our best bet and our, our greatest advantage when we know what the Psalm is about is, is to go back and at least have some understanding about the setting. So um, when we get to those, we'll try to spend a little bit more time with them because we understand better the, the context. Um, when we don't have that, then we're left to just take the psalm in and of itself, and it stands by itself outside the context of a certain situation. So uh, it's still Hebrew poetry. It's still meant to convey ideas and understanding. It still works by contrast and by repetition, which is Hebrew poetry at its best. So tonight, because we wanted to just get a little overview, we just want to look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Uh, psalm 1 certainly a psalm of contrast. Um, psalm 2 a great messianic psalm of declaration that covers in really the entire dealing of God with his people until he returns. So all just in um, 12 verses. So Psalm 1 and 2 tonight, and then Lord be willing, 3 through 5 next week, 
and then we'll try to do 6 through 10, 11 through 15, 16 through 20. Read ahead, would you, before you show up on Sunday nights. But let's start on Psalm 1, verse 1, and just read through this six verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away, and therefore the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The psalm begins with the word blessed, ends with the word perish. So in six verses, you want to be sure that you got it right. It's a contrast psalm. It's not really told to us here who, it, who wrote it. But like most Hebrew poetry, it's, it's comparison and contrast, sinner, saint, godly, ungodly. I, I remember in college having to, to do a class on poetry, and one of the poems we had to read was Robert uh, Frost's Road Less Traveled, or I think it's called The Road Not Taken, actually. But, but one of the lines were two Roads diverged in a wooden eye, took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference. And so we had to write a paper on what that meant. But I think that's pretty good in, in the sense of contrast, because that's really the way that the Lord works in the Psalms. He sets before you such diverse kind of information that you can't help but get the lesson right. And Jesus used this form of teaching a lot. If you read, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord will talk about two gates and two roads and two trees and two types of fruit and two houses and two foundations, and that's all in about 40 verses. He's, he's good at teaching contrast or comparison. So here's Psalm 1. It's, it stands by itself. We don't know the context in which it is given, but in verses 1, 2, and 3, we're given the godly man told of the blessings for him, verse 1, in the things he doesn't do, in verse 2, the things he does, and then the fruit of, or the result of his life walking with God. Whereas in verses 4, 5, and 6, we are told what drives the ungodly man, what is waiting for the ungodly man, and what his long-term future holds. So contrast. Um, the word blessed in verse 1, by the way, in Hebrew is almost always plural. I know it doesn't read that way, blessednesses, is, is, <laughs> but... It, it speaks of the fact that when God blesses, and the word's sometimes translated, oh, how happy, God doesn't just bless one thing at a time. God's blessings are, are, are numerous. And so when you read this word blessed, it is the translation of a plural word, um, and it is always speaking of the things God will do for you as you look to him. Now, I want you to notice something very different than what we would normally do. When we talk about blessing, usually we talk about the positive. In fact, um, modern psychology would tell you to emphasize the positive. And there are churches today in America built on the premise, falsely, that positive confession is somehow the only biblical way of life. And yet, here God begins in the psalm, the book of worship, emphasizing the negative. Here's your blessing in what you don't do. 
and then goes to the positive. But notice verse one, oh, how happy is the man who is marked by what he does not do. The places he does not go, the books he does not read, the movies he does not watch, the counsel he does not follow, the company he does not keep. How blessed this guy for getting away from all of those things. And if a man would be happy, he would be well on the road if he avoids certain things in life, which makes God's blessings impossible. Avoid what God's blessings would keep or would keep you from. God's blessing, avoid those things. So, blessed is the man first who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or literally, the, the blessed man is the man who doesn't listen to the advice of the world. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because that's one of the things that we battle with as Christians. Who am I going to believe? What am I going to do? Who am I going to follow? And, and unfortunately, with newspapers and radio and iPods and computers and TV, you are bombarded constantly with worldly advice. Most people will tell you exactly what the latest poll is, what the latest ideas, what the latest studies have shown, what the latest findings are. Oh, man, you know, and pretty soon you got to just, your whole life is just in disarray because the world has gotten in to just influencing your life. Go ahead and cheat on your taxes. Everybody does. The government has enough money as it is. You know what you need is a night out on the time, town, a couple of stiff drinks to calm you down. Well, maybe that's what I need. No, it's not. That's the counsel of the ungodly. You don't need that. I can't wait for the weekend party. Sure you can. And one sure sign of salvation is where we look to for counsel and what we trust when it comes to the decisions that we make. And, you know, when the Lord spoke to Israel in Psalm, well, it'll be a while, Psalm 81, the Lord said to them, my people will not hear my voice and will have none of me. And so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts and I, you know, let them walk in their own counsel. Oh, that my people would have just listened to me and walked in my ways. That was the lament from the Lord. And then the Lord said, if they had done that, I would soon have subdued their enemies. My hand would have turned against their adversaries. And the haters of the Lord who pretend submission to him would find their fate enduring. Then I could have fed them of the finest wheat. And I could have given them honey from the rock. And I could have satisfied them. But they didn't want to listen to me. The psalmist begins with the words to us, blessed are you if you just turn off the advice that comes from the ungodly that you realize or you listen to where the advice that you're following is coming from. I would, I would think that much of the things that we listen to and move, are moved by is oftentimes worldly counsel, not biblical counsel. And we would be wise to just listen to the Lord when he speaks. Because invariably, when the world's counsel fails, God's counsel still stands. It'll still be right, you know? We've had to change our opinions a lot about the world. You know, we used to think the world was flat, but God was still God. And then the world turned out to be round. God was still God. And then, you know, there was always something on the horizon. I remember in, in fourth grade sitting under my desk as the air raid sirens went off. The, the communists are coming, you know. Do you guys remember doing this? Oh, man, and I'd look across at the guy in front of me. You're the last guy I'm going to see before I get annihilated. This is not good. And then everything was okay again. I don't know. You know, the world just kind of goes up and down with the latest craze, and God's word just stays the same. I like the fact that 200 years ago, folks that were alive were studying the Bible and meeting God. And somehow it doesn't need to be updated. There isn't like a, a new revised Bible version. 
you know, or we change the things that are wrong. We don't, we do that in physics books. You know, when I was in school and I was a microbiology major, we had to have books that were written the year before because else they were out of date. We keep changing our minds and getting new information and, and having a different opinion. And then here's the Bible, same old Bible, you know, same old word of God, dependable. Who's blessed? The fellow who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And I'm amazed at even doing counseling with people, marriage counseling especially, how often people come with the Dr. Phil way of life. Or I read, you know, so-and-so's book, and this is the way you should be. But it isn't biblical. It's psychological. It, it, it changes with the latest test and the latest Roshar and the latest picture. What do you see there? I just want to see the Bible. <laughs> I just want to hear from God. It's all that we need. Blessed, plural, is the man who doesn't walk in the ungodly counsel or will not stand in the way of sinners. Now, there's nothing wrong in the Bible with being friendly with the lost. Jesus certainly was. He attracted friends of all kinds of folks, from beggars to rulers. But he did so with only one interest. He wanted to bring them to faith. His enemy said there in Luke 7, look at that fellow who says he's the son of man. And Jesus said, I've come to eat and to drink, and you call me a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was around folks who were hurting, but he always saw the world as a place of ministry. To stand in the way of sinners implies that you participate with or you agree to their position. It is an agreement place, the sinful activities of those who don't know God, and I go stand with them. Not only should I not heed their counsel, I shouldn't participate in their ways. I've got to come out and be separate. Isn't that the way it works? So if you want to be blessed, you'll come out and be separate. Separate yourself from the crowd. In other words, don't be a crowd follower. Solomon will write in the next book that we'll get to just any day now, in chapter 1 of Proverbs, my son, if the sinners entice you, don't consent. And when they say to you, come on along with us, let us just lie in wait and shed blood and lurk in secret for the innocent without cause. Let them swallow them up alive. Don't go with them. Don't cast your lot in among them as having one purse. Don't walk with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet are running to evil. You don't want to go that direction. It is so important that as Christians, though we are to reach the world, we don't have to find our fellowship in the world. In fact, I always say to folks that I'm counseling, the world is for ministry. The church is for fellowship. You know, well, I'm hanging out with the boys, you know, we're going to play cards, have a few beers. I'm trying to witness to them. It won't work that way. Better you come out from among them. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Yeah, but, you know, how am I going to reach them if I don't meet them where they are? You just be who you are and let God's light shine through you. Approachable, sure. Forgiving, yes. Merciful, always. Having an answer for the hope that lies within you every time someone asks. But the world is for ministry. You're to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The Lord never once says in the Bible, go into the world, have fellowship. Come out from among them, he says. Separate yourself from them. What, what fellowship is light with darkness? In the church, that's where you have fellowship. You know, if you're looking to, for a husband or a wife, look in the church. Forget looking in the world. Look around where the light's on, you know. But don't stand in the way of sinners. In Proverbs, I think it's chapter 4, Solomon says to his boy, I've taught you the ways of wisdom. I've led you in the right paths. When your feet walk now, you, you, you won't be hindered in your step. And when you run now, you won't stumble because you have this firm instruction. So don't let go of it. 
It's your life. And never turn again to the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it. Let it pass on. For these folks won't sleep unless they've done something evil. They won't be able to sleep unless they've made someone fall. Stay off the path. First song. Blessed is the man. Doesn't live his life by worldly counsel. Doesn't put himself in a position to stand in the way of sinners. And, and there's plenty of examples of that. You know, Abraham was a fellow who went to stand in the way of sinners when he went down to Egypt to avoid the famine in the land of promise. And he went to Egypt and he took his wife and she was beautiful and he knew that the Pharaoh would immediately take her so, and kill him. So he said to Sarah, just tell him you're my sister. And in the process, Abraham, standing with sinners, loses his testimony. And it isn't long before the Lord starts harassing Pharaoh for having separated Sarah from Abram, only to find out Pharaoh does that that's his wife. And he says, Abram, come here. What are you doing lying to me? Why don't you just tell me she's your wife? Because I, she's beautiful. Look at her. You know, you'll take her from me. You'll probably kill me. And he's rebuked by a heathen for his ungodliness. He stood in the way of sinners. Lot stood in the way of sinners when he followed the king of Sodom rather than the king of Salem. And he ended up living close to Sodom, moved into Sodom, was a chief in Sodom, and ended up losing most of his family there because he stood in the way of sinners. He wasn't distinct. His kids had to be forced by an angel to leave town. His wife couldn't leave it behind. Peter stood in the way of sinners the night that Jesus was on trial at Caiaphas's house. He warmed himself at the world's fires. He ends up bitterly denying the Lord, the Bible says, with oaths and cursing. A little girl, a maiden girl, who just served in the house, scared him to death. So did the soldiers. No peace for Peter. He was standing in the way of sinners. No blessedness in standing with the crowd. I tell you what, if you want to fit in, fit into the body of Christ. Forget about fitting into the world. You don't fit in. <laughs> You've got to come out from among them. I, I really think if you look at the world, and even if we go to work tomorrow, you, know, you may have friends there, but that's your ministry if those people aren't saved. Be a witness. Be a light. Find your friendship amongst the saints who can help you do better with the Lord. Or if you're going to take some people out from the world, then take a bunch of Christians so you outnumber them, so you don't get overwhelmed, and so you'll be able to stand your ground. Because blessed is the man that doesn't agree and stand with and participate and agree with sinners. Thirdly, blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. The ungodly has his counsel, the sinner has his way, and the scornful, notice, has its seat. So there's a progression here from wickedness to ungodliness, from ungodliness to the sinner, from the sinner to the scornful, from walking to standing to sitting. It's like this downward spiral. The word scornful is... Literally, the Greek or the Hebrew word, sorry, for the one, someone who mocks or um, they hold the things of God in derision in their heart. They, they make fun of that which God has said. They, they just see it as foolishness. They, they can't believe that you actually pray and think God is listening. What a joke, you know. Come on, this is the year 2007, you know. Why are you still doing that old ancient of days thing? Well, the happy man avoids sitting in agreement and comfortably with those who would scoff or criticize God's way. The humanists, the atheists, the liberals, <laughs> who, who just think that your faith is the course of the weak and the uninformed. Go to a college campus today and try to talk about Jesus. 
see what kind of criticism you're going to get from those in the places of higher learning. To discredit faith, to undermine your hope, to question God's word. Um, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, Solomon will write. He scorns the scornful, gives grace to the humble. Be careful when you start to entertain scorn. Even today, by the way, in many seminaries, there is a tremendous move to question the resurrection, the virgin birth, if there's a hell. In fact, there's a tremendous movement now amongst the um, seeker-friendly groups and especially the emerging church people to just absolutely write hell off as a place. God wouldn't do that. That's not literal. Well, it's pretty literal in my book. And it's talked about more than heaven is. But, you know, the assertions that the Bible are unreasonable or in doubt, you know, oftentimes by the time you come out of seminary, you're better equipped to be a Marxist than a minister. And you're better equipped to be a very worldly man than a representative of Jesus Christ. So be careful of the, of the hanging around the scorn because you can become scornful just by hanging around. It rubs off, doesn't it? Cynicism rubs off. So... Blessed is the man who stays away from all of these things. That's, that's good. The godly man will separate from the world and avoid the pitfalls. But here's what he will do on the positive side. He will delight himself in the law of the Lord. Or the law of the Lord will have his full affection. I hope you're reading through the Bible on those cards we handed out this year. I hope you're sticking with it. If you're not, you, know, you can still get one in the back. You'll have a lot of reading to catch up. But you can catch up. Or just start the day that you get it, you know, and then... Go, but it's been wonderful reading through and just, you know, sitting down. I, I, I do a lot of Bible studies just to, to teach, so you're always reading with that eye to teach. And it's kind of nice just sit down and read, you know. And you, gosh, look, at I read 38 chapters one day. I just, oh, I just like reading. Oh, this is good. This is, hey, I'm way ahead. So now I'm not reading at all because I'm way ahead. <laughs> That's not true. Delighting in the Lord, you know. He has a different counsel than the ungodly. He has a different company than the sinful. He has a different cause than the scornful. He just loves God's word. His delight is in the scripture. Maybe I'm singing to the choir. You guys are all in church on a Sunday night. You could be home doing a lot of other things. But your delight is in the law of the Lord. And as that's the case, blessed that man, blessed that woman. Secondly, in that law, in his word, he meditates day and night. Not only is it his affection but he gives it all of his attention. This word meditation is a great word in the Bible. It's not the old Hinduism kind of transcendental meditation. It's not the science variety, if you will, or pretending to be science. But I think that it is rather that description of engaging your mind consciously to ponder the presence and the truths of God seriously. Um, transcendental meditation, a lot of those philosophies ask you to disengage your mind. Empty your mind, you know. I say stay away from anybody that tells you you shouldn't think while you're doing what you're doing. Because God gave you a brain for a reason. Don't invite Satan home to your head. That's what I say. I say that all the time. <laughs> but rather meditate biblically, engaging your thought on the truths of God, mulling them over, thinking through the implication learning from the example, seeking to apply them in your life, asking God to bring them back to your remembrance. We can practice then the, the presence of God in our own life. Um, I, I love studying and, and I always, you know, open the Bible and say, Lord, I want to hear from you. 
That Psalm 119 about the Bible where, where the psalmist writes, my eyes are awake through the night as I meditate on your word. I, I usually keep this pad of paper next to my bed. Sometimes I wake up at 3 in the morning. I don't know if that's just age or if it's the Lord. But I'm hoping it's the Lord. You know, I want to hear from God. And sometimes I used to complain, oh, it's 3 a.m. I can't believe I'm awake already, you know. And, it was just and then you're upset and you don't sleep at all. It's like 6 everywhere. No. But now I just go, Lord, what do you want to teach me? You know, and try to think about what I've read or what I've been studying. Wonderful times. You don't get a lot of sleep, but you get a lot of other stuff. Um, it's good to meditate on the scriptures, isn't it? And, and you should study that way. You shouldn't just read it and put it aside. You should seek to understand and apply it. And, you know, I always, I always tell people, how do you study? I, I say to people, when you read, read with questions. What's God telling me? What does God want me to avoid? What does God want me to do? What is these scriptures? Is it a promise? Is it a warning? You know, I think the best meditation is done with paper and pencil because you can write down what God speaks to you and you can think about it and think it through, which is why I've always practiced, at least for my own life, reading one of the Psalms and then trying to think about it during the day because they're real good. You know, they help you to grow and they, they help you to learn what the Lord is wanting to do. So this is a good Psalm. You could memorize this Psalm. There's only six verses. Blessed is the man who makes his delight in the law of the Lord and meditates in that law. Night and day his mind is filled with the things of God. I, 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 when I do marriage counseling, sometimes you'll talk to men, and men are really good at like football statistics and who's in first place. And, and you'll go, hey, tell me your favorite 10 verses. And they'll go, 10? You want 10? Well, yeah, who are your favorite 10 baseball players? Oh, yeah, there you go right there. And that's just this year. This, I'm talking this year, you know. American League this year, that's all I'm saying. They know everything. And then you go, 10 verses, no clue. So I'm thinking they're spending way too much time in the sports page and much too little in the book of Psalms. It takes time to learn, doesn't it? And it takes a commitment to grow. Meditation means that you purposefully put your mind on the things of the Lord. Blessed is the man by what he doesn't do. Blessed is the man by where he spends his delightful time and his attention. And then here's the, the, the result, verse 3. He's like a tree. There's the comparative word. Planted by a river of water, by a water source, this tree brings forth its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, taking from the simile to the person, will prosper. Now, in the Bible, water is used symbolically to speak of a lot of things. The Word of God and how it cleanses us. The Holy Spirit and how he refreshes us and enables us. Or just that life of faith in Christ. So... These are, these are results of this man who doesn't do these things and does these things. And I want you to notice, it's just one example. He's a tree planted by a water source that has deep enough roots to get to water all the time to grow and be healthy. He's not a wild tree. He isn't a sometimes dead, sometimes alive tree. He's next to his life source. He's in fellowship with God, if you will. And if there's drought, he doesn't know about it. And if there's weakness, he doesn't experience it. And if there's barrenness, that's not his story. And if there's dryness, that's not what he's experienced. What he's experienced is the unfailing source of life. And if the wind is blowing hot, he's unaffected. His roots are in the water. Here's a guy that just is set no matter what life deals for him. He's set. He's blessed. He brings forth its fruit in season. He's not a freak. You know, trees bring forth sometimes untimely fruit. They never ripen. You can't eat them. But if you stay in the Lord and in fellowship, the fruit comes in season, doesn't it? Let us not grow weary in well-doing, because in due season we shall 
reap if we don't faint. And his leaf won't wither, which means he's a spiritual evergreen. I think that's important. He's not like, how are you doing today? Oh, I love Jesus. And the next day you want to die. And then on Sunday, he's all excited. On Tuesday, he'd like to just give up. No, he's just stable, right? No hibernation. <laughs> Doesn't take time off for the winter. He's just fruitful. And whatever he does, whether it's his house or his business or his family with his friends or his church life, because his life is right with God, everything he does prospers. He finds God's blessing in all that he turns his mind to do. In all, Joshua said to the people as he sent them out into the promised land, this book of the law should not depart out of your mouth. You should meditate in it day and night. You should seek to do all that is written therein, for in so doing, you'll make your way prosperous, and in so doing, you'll find good success. Now, that's no promise for riches, not financial, but it's promise for spiritual riches. You'll, you'll be blessed. This is the solution. People come and, they, and when they come in for counseling and things are going bad, you can almost just give them Psalm 1 and say, go learn this. Because if your relationship with God is right, everything's fine. If your relationship with God is not right, everything's a mess. And it never can be fine. Herein is my Father glorified. You bear much fruit. You've not chosen me, I've chosen you, that you should bring forth fruit. Your fruit should remain. And the best test of your life is the fruit that remains. Well, that's the godly man, verse 4. Now, the ungodly man, by contrast. And, you know, you're either married or single, happy or unhappy, alive or dead, godly or ungodly. There really is no, like, third category. But here you get three things about the ungodly man, what drives him, what dooms him, and what damns him. Verse 4. The ungodly man is not like that at all, what we've just studied. Instead, he's like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now the Holy Spirit, I think, with very studied and deliberate wording, sets this guy apart. In fact, the Septuagint version, which is the Greek Old Testament, translates this verse 4 with a double negative so that it reads, not so the ungodly, not so with him. He's about as different as can be. In contrast to the towering tree with the firmly planted in the soil roots and the constant nourishment and the separation from the world and, and the fruit in its season and the leaf that never withers, this ungodly man is like chaff. Now, you know, when you beat wheat on a rock as they did to get to the pulp, the chaff is that stuff, almost like popcorn, that stuff that gets stuck in your teeth, you know, that's chaff. Popcorn's all right, but that little yellow thing that goes way up in there, ah. Oh, Chaff. Good for nothing. And so they'd beat the wheat, you know, and they'd get the wheat, and the chaff would just go in the winds. And so they'd wait for a windy night, and the chaff would just blow wherever the wind blows. Now here's the description of the ungodly man. He's at the mercy of forces he cannot control, and his spiritual life is in the path of a hurricane. He is driven to disaster by the prince of the power of the air. He lives his life by the spirit that is working in the children of disobedience. He only believes what he can see. He's being led by the devil, cast off his chaff, the unedible part of the wheat. And it's worthless stuff. His life doesn't have fruit. It doesn't bear strength. It doesn't give help. He might think he's the captain of his own ship. He might believe he's the master of his own destiny. But the ungodly man is relentlessly driven, and he's powerless to put on the brakes any more than chaff can say to the wind, I want to get off right here. You can't. You're caught in it. You know, there you go. 
And the world from the Lord's eyes is, is our hearts and souls being driven by the wind. Therefore, verse 5, and that's all the Lord says. They're not like what you just read. They're chaff. Therefore, result, doomed, the ungodly man will not stand when it comes to the judgment. And the sinners won't stand, another word for the ungodly, amongst or in or with the congregation of the righteous. Look, sinners have a stand, verse 2, or verse 1, that second part there. They stand in the path of sinners. They have a stand. They have a position. They have an opinion. They have a practice. <laughs> on Judgment Day, they just don't have a leg to stand on. And no matter what they do in this life, when they go to stand before the Lord, everything they have invested in will be gone. And there's nowhere for them to stand. Their house has been built on the sand. Their hopes have been built on the temporary... <laughs> Hi, Lord. Oh, my gosh, there's nothing like I thought it would be. It's all gone. Judgment awaits. They won't stand. When the righteous stand, they will not stand. In fact, verse 6 says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but he also knows the way of the ungodly, and the ungodly are the ones that are going to perish. Broad road, narrow road. Two roads. By nature, by the way, and by practice, every one of us set our feet on the broad road first. Verse uh, 6 of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has walked to its own way. We've all taken our own path. We've all turned everyone to their own way. And then the Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. So we're all, by deliberate choice, heading in the wrong direction. We're all going to have to, by deliberate choice, come back to faith, right? So we can be numbered with the godly, so our lives can be fruitful because one day, like the chaff and the wheat, they're going to be separated. And the Lord knows who's who. You're not going to be able to fool the Lord. You might fool people in church. You're always here. People think, oh, there's a believer. Well, the Lord knows for sure what you are. I don't. I hope. I believe. I pray. Love believes all things. But I have no idea. I've seen the, the most godly people I looked up to with such great, you know, wonder fall. You know, what in the world's going on there? Well, I don't know their hearts. But the Lord does, and, and you want to be sure you're up here in the top of this psalm, don't you? Because in the end, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Who can go from being driven to being directed? Those who turn to the Lord. Who can go from sinner to saint? Those who turn to the Lord. Who can go from ungodly to godly? Those who turn in faith to him. What best describes your life, verses 1 through 3 or verses 4, 5, and 6? The second psalm, and again, we don't have a... Um, frame to put it in, historical frame. But it is a very messianic psalm. It goes along with Psalm 8 and 16 and 22 and 23 and 24 and 40 and 41. And there's a bunch more. 45, 68, 69, 72. You get my message. I don't know anymore. There's more, but I forget. Um, and here's the messianic psalm that covers, like I said, God's dealing with man in 12 verses. Now, here, here's the key. Four speakers in the psalm. Verse 1, 2, and 3, David. You're going to say to me, how do you know David wrote? It doesn't say so. It does in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, where Peter, in speaking, said, hey, by the way, David wrote Psalm 2, and then quoted from it. So I'll, I'll, I'll buy it just because it's in my Bible elsewhere. But in verses 1, 2, and 3, you'll see David speaking, the one who has been promised by God that one day a descendant of his will rule the world from his throne, and yet the corridors of history have seemed to show the opposite. And now the nations are amassing against the Lord, and David wants to know why. Then in verse 4, 5, and 6, God the Father laughs from heaven. 
and he speaks up that man's rebellion is ludicrous from heaven's viewpoint. At Jesus' first coming, the Bible says all of heaven wept at his treatment, but at the second coming, they will all laugh with victory. Then in verses 7, 8, and 9, God the Son speaks, assuring David he indeed will reign, and God the Father has proclaimed it so, and that the outcome is not in doubt. And then verse 10, 11, and 12, God the Holy Spirit speaks, upholding the claims of Jesus and warning the nations before it's too late. So let's read these verses. Verse 1, why do the nations rage, David asks, and the people imagine a vain thing, and the kings of the earth set themselves against the rule, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break the bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a, a vain thing? The word plot here is the same word as meditate in the last one. Why do they think this through? The godly man uses his imagination to delight in God's ways. The wicked <laughs> to find a way to rebel. They set themselves, verse 2. They position themselves against God and his anointed, who is none other than Jesus. Pilate did it. Caesar did it. Hitler did it. Communism does it. Many rulers today do it. But at the end of the tribulation, most all of the nations of the earth will be gathered in that same mindset against God, following the Antichrist, ready to battle him. And Peter and the church prayed this prayer after facing persecution for preaching. They said, Lord, truly, um, against your servant Jesus, whom you've anointed, Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the people of Israel have gathered together, but now they're really only doing whatever your hand is allowed. They saw the battle against God's rulership. That's the way life is in the world, you know. The world fights against God. Deep-seated determination and settled rage get God out of the world, get God out of our lives. And notice from verse 1, it isn't just the nations, it's the people as well. It's the kings and the rulers and the people. It, does, it starts at the top, but it doesn't end there. It's a grassroots movement. Let's get rid of God. Let's, let's break his bonds. Let's cast away his cords. Let's have a life where God doesn't influence us. That's the cry of the world. I think we can see that around us. God's answer, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens will laugh, and the Lord will hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath, distress them in his deep displeasure. I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. God's answer is to laugh. Men are fools to try to oppose God. You know, putting a foot on the moon and advancement in medical science hardly makes you equal with God. We are still answerable for our life. He'll still have the last laugh, if you will. God's laugh, notice, is replaced in verse 5 with his anger and with his distress and his wrath. God isn't intimidated by people or nations. Jesus came to save. Verse 6, yet I have set, is a past tense statement in Hebrew, which means that the Lord has established his son to rule, and though it hasn't physically happened yet, you can count on it, the Lord is coming to rule from Zion. Surely, and Zion being Jerusalem. Jesus then speaks, I will declare the decree that the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations that are, verse 1 and 2, rebelling, for your inheritance, the ends of the earth, 
for your possessions, you'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus speaks to David a word about his sonship and coming rule. One moment, as you read Revelations, the beast will be strutting his stuff. The nations of the world will be gathered at Megiddo to oppose Christ. You can read about it in um, Revelation 16. And the next minute, the Lord steps in and the beast is gone. And his rule is destroyed and his armies are leveled. It doesn't take but one word. The Lord has established himself. He is going to reign with a rod of iron dashing them in pieces like a broken vessel. When Jesus comes the second time, he's going to rule with an iron hand, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you and I, we're going to rejoice. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the Bible says. It's going to be quite a day, right? But David, he heard about someone ruling on his, in his name, but what he saw was rebellion in the world. The father laughs, the son declares his rulership, the Holy Spirit adds, now therefore his witness. You should be wise, O kings, and instructed, you judges of the earth. You should serve the Lord with fear. You should rejoice with trembling. And you should kiss the son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Yet, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So God speaks through the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit speaks to literally say, you know, the Lord would rather you don't face this wrath. You don't end up on the wrong side of this equation. God offers man peace, not war. He doesn't force his life and his love upon anyone. But he calls men, as the Holy Spirit does, to lay down their rebellion against the Son, kiss the Son, make terms of peace. The kiss, kissing the Son, make peace with God. Because the world hasn't seen the last of Jesus, and he's coming back. For now, you can get amnesty for your sin, but not forever. You either are going to bow now, or you're going to bow later. But the answer is, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So two good psalms. I hope you'll memorize them, know them, use them. Next week, chapter 3, 4, and 5. And by the way, next week, all three of the chapters are written by David in the morning, in the evening, and then for wisdom. So they go together, and we'll look at them next week. Father, tonight as we sit together, we thank you for your word to us. And just, I thank you for the folks at Morningstar who regularly make it a point to get to church in the evenings and really want more than anything else to know your heart. And we pray that for all of the folks who call this church home, that that would be the will of everyone that's here, that there would be a stirring of the heart, a real desire, Lord, in our hearts to know you better, that we could be those trees that were planted next to the water, that we could be those wise, blessed men and women who stay away from the world's counsel and the world's opinions and the world's scorn, who don't agree and won't stand, who love the people and will reach out in love, but who cannot participate or, or align themselves or commit themselves to the ways of life in the world, because we have been called out <laughs> to separate ourselves for you. So may the world become for us a place of ministry and the church a place of fellowship and love. And may you fill us up and send us out and pour us out and bring us back and fill us up. Send us out again. And may your word tonight just burn in our hearts. Maybe this evening you find yourself, you know, far away from the Lord. That doesn't have to be that way. 
in fact, the Bible teaches that God's is a, uh, the God of the Bible is a God who reveals himself. He wants you to know him. He could hide easy enough, tell you nothing. But that's not his heart. He would want you to know his heart, to know his will, to know his ways, to experience his power in your life. And if you're at that position where you just feel so removed, the prayer room is open tonight. Go and pray with someone. Maybe get the Bible out and let them just, the, the folks there, share some verses with you that may help you as you just try to work through this, you know, distance between you and the Lord. Because God wants to draw you close. He wants you to be the godly one of the psalm so he can richly bless your life. And then you can have some coffee next door. If you're a young, one of the young folks, you can go to the college study tonight. Just lots to do. But hang out with the saints, man. That's where fellowship begins. And then go out and tell the world about Jesus because that's where ministry starts. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Morningstar CC.